Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Judson Hewitt of the California Space Program discussing self-reproducing manufacturing in space. Also, we'll find out how the Gregorian calendar was established. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up, here on Berkeley Grox. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. I think uh, the New Year's going pretty well. New Year's going pretty well so far. I'm, I'm so quite far. happy, yeah. Mm-hmm. So far, uh, the aliens have not invaded and meteorites have not crashed into the Earth, so I think we're doing pretty well. But I do have one small complaint. Oh, no. All the spam. Uh, spam? Yes. Spam is great. No, the Hotmail spam. Oh, okay. I mean... Who's out there who's sending us all this junk? I'm not sure. But have you seen have you seen the new spam commercials, by the way? Uh, no. How I, are they? Exercise isn't fun. <laughs> it's not fun. Well, it is fun. Oh, it is fun. Yeah. So uh, for those spammers out there, there's, this is good or bad news, but uh, uh, email systems like, say, Yahoo are implementing these programs. Actually, one of them is called Gimpy. And what they do is they try to destroy bots. So bots are programs that send junk to you know email accounts, addresses, and... One of the tricks they do is they uh, they go through the internet creating you know these temporary email accounts and from there sending these massive email lists so there's no one to really complain to. Mm. What this group at UC Berkeley has done is they create a program that can counteract these programs that counteract the uh, the bots. So it's actually good for the bots. I see. So it actually uh, counteracts the counteracting agent for the bots. Right. Okay. Right. So the idea of how these programs works is that, for example, uh, you know, you're registering a new account on Yahoo, and what they'll do is they'll give you some random number that's generated at the bottom of your screen, and you enter that in order to register. So that's just a security projection. Uh, normal bots do not have the capability to recognize these characters. All of them are uh, picture images, so their optical character recognition is still not quite advanced. But what this uh, group at Berkeley did was uh, they used some sort of character recognition to make out letters from these pictures and as a result they can uh, they can sneak around these uh, counteracting agents okay I see that's pretty cool so you know this is an effort in order to uh, make these bot destroyer even stronger in the future so we won't get so many spam I guess you know I, I enjoy my spam because where else would I find out about all the cool porn that's on the internet oh that stuff yeah. but it's not free though <laughs> <laughs> you need a selective anti-spammer but anyway yes if anyone wants to know more they can contact the, uh, the professor Jitendra Madrick you can email him at malik at cs.berkeley.edu don't send many spam Though. 
Well, uh, so the tenuous link between polio, SV40, and cancer has been shattered. God, I can live forever then, huh? You can live forever and... And, and die another day. And be as happy as you can possibly be. Apparently there's this uh, very strong link uh, between a polio vaccine, which had been given to a number of people between the years 1955 and 1963, mm-hmm. which had been contaminated with the SV40 uh, virus. Apparently uh, there had been some previous evidence that this was linked to an increased incidence of cancer in perhaps those patients that received the uh, mm-hmm. the vaccine. But a recent study led by Marie McCormick, a professor and chair of the Department of Maternal and Child Health at Harvard School of Public Health, has recently shown that, in fact, uh, there's no link between this uh, particular um, contamination of the polio vaccine and cancer. I see. So is it just a um, correlation fluke? or? Uh, I guess uh, the pr- previous methods were methodologically flawed. Ah. And because of that, they really couldn't say absolutely whether or not uh, there was, in fact, some kind of link. Okay. And she says, uh, if you were to worry about things, uh, I'd be worried about a lot of other things before I were worried about this particular problem. Great. People are worried about this. Where should they read more? Well, they can, they can look in a number of uh, sources, but uh, this particular study was uh, published in uh, the National Academy Press. Okay, so last week we talked about wasps, and this week we have something for bees. Oh, well, they're, they're lovely cousins to the uh, to the smaller side. Yes, and it's amazing I can remember what I talked about last week, huh? <laughs> you know, we, we just talk about so many things on this program, but they're all very, uh, very rememberable. They're lucid in my mind. Yes, indeed. Anyways, uh, here's the question. Have you stepped on any mines lately? Just just the ones that have blown my head off, but uh, no. The trouble with detecting mines is that a lot of them have less than uh, half a gram of metal inside, so metal detectors aren't very effective for uh, detecting mines. But some researchers at Sandia Lab are using bees as tracers for finding these mines. And we know that a lot of the uh, explosives contain uh, trinitrotoluene, TNT, which is the uh, the, uh, the main ingredient for explosives. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that TNT also releases some byproducts, uh, DNT, the dinitrotoluene, and uh, toluene itself. You can find that seeping through the soil and into the atmosphere. And so what these researchers are trying to do um, is to um, condition these bees in their food so that they, they have a affinity for these uh, byproducts, the uh, dinitrotoluene and the toluene. And with that, they can, you know, send bees into the uh, the minefield, see where they uh, where they they try to gather, and use that as a indicator for uh, for detecting these mines. I see. Well, I mean, I'm wondering what the spatial resolution of uh, that is, because you know, bees kind of fly around all over the place. Right. So the idea is that they would have they would send an entire hive of bees, uh-huh. uh, all of them marked with, you know, maybe a, a micro LED or something, something that their computer could detect uh-huh. and see where the density of the bees sure centers maximizes. Yeah. Well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, and it, this could be a you know really really effective way. After all, uh, it's estimated there's still 70 million mines deployed throughout the world. Right, right. And better have the uh, the bees blow up than yeah. uh, <laughs> than the canine sniffing dog, which I guess they use as well. Uh, but that's that's pretty cool. So uh, if you want to find out about that that really cool, I guess you can call bee it an invention. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they can go to the October issue of Today's Chemist at Work. Ah, Today's Chemist at Work. What are they doing in those labs? Conditioning uh, bees, I guess. <laughs> and I didn't know chemists work with bees. Wasn't that like supposed to be <laughs> something biologists do? Yeah. Oh, well. All right, and here's a uh, really quick story. So have you uh, ever left some teeth for the tooth fairy? Uh, actually, I did. 
and I think I got a couple dollars. Wow, she's she's pretty nice. I only, yeah. I only got other teeth back, <laughs> which was strange. I guess it was kind of a swapping thing going on. Yeah. Um, but apparently a, a group of researchers have just found a way of uh, growing uh, teeth inside of the abdomen of rats. Wow. So I guess it, it aids that digestion, huh? I, I suppose so. So they used a, a really cool technique where they harvest cells from, in this case, pig teeth, and planted them in the rat's uh, omega, which is in the abdomen. Mm. And 20 to 30 weeks later, they had uh, small mineralized uh, teeth growing in the abdomen, which they could harvest and, and use as, as teeth. So, I mean, do these teeth have the shape of a regular teeth, or is it just a, you know, a random rock with well, some blood running through it? Right, right. So they used a scaffold on which they could grow and, and see. look like a, a tooth. So it's really cool stuff. It was uh, in the Joseph Vicanti lab over at MIT, mm-hmm. and it's in the Journal of Dental Research. So I guess this promise for people who are losing their teeth may have possible replacements in the right. future, huh? Right, certainly, I guess, uh, more natural replacements than dentures and, and such right. like that. And right. good news for all the kids out there who want more money from the tooth fairy. Just <laughs> buy your tooth rat and put it in there. It's just that easy. Yep. And that's all for our look at current developments in the world of science. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Justin Hewitt will join us to tell us a little bit about manufacturing in space. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Ever since recorded history, man has tried to reach for the stars. In the 20th century, we have sent men to the moon and back, and we also launched probes beyond the solar system. But how do we build a colony in space? How do we sustain civilization there? With us today is Mr. Justin Hewitt from the California Space Program, and he will give us some answers to these questions. Mr. Hewitt, thanks for joining us. Hello. Could you first tell us what the uh, California Space Program is about? Well, our organization is um, intended to establish a um, space program for construction of large objects in outer space. Um, we've existed since 1983, although there were earlier versions of the California Space Program at the um, University of California at Berkeley. Um, there was a Elfos Society um, chapter in the 1970s at Berkeley as well in the 1980s, a um, space working group, and then the California Space Program grew out of that later, um, also with some people from Stanford University who are interested in the same sort of space programs. Mm-hmm. What kind of projects are you uh, carrying out these days? Um, well, our main project is um, analysis of and design of very large space programs, mm-hmm. 
we might start this out by saying, um, for example, how would you construct a university in space? Mm. Um, in some ways, this might be uh, a way to um, look at the problem of what you're going to construct in outer space. Um, in some ways, the Earth is limited. Um, we've got pollution here, especially from energy production causing carbon dioxide and so global warming. Mm-hmm. And um, we might want to um, construct things in outer space such as um, to get an energy supply of electricity from solar power satellites in outer space. Um, these can be constructed to have a um, output per satellite of 10 gigawatts of electricity to deliver to Earth. Um, the delivery is by transmission through infrared laser beam to receivers that are on Earth. And um, as for the cost estimates, these have been worked out and published. Um, there's various ways to do it. Um, a more expensive and technologically easier way um, would cost for the setting up the first system and constructing the first solar power satellite $170 billion versus, say, the Apollo moon project of the 1960s and 1970s, which cost about $306 billion hmm. in current dollars. Um, a cheaper way to set up the system and construct the first one would cost $45 billion. There's different plans, as I mentioned, and the uh, different plans have different uh, levels of technology that are required. The cheaper ones generally are more efficient, but they require more advanced technologies. And um, to construct these solar power satellites, depending on the exact plan, would take, say, seven to um, ten years um, to complete from the first launch, after which more would be continuing to be constructed. So then uh, the cost per unit um, continues to go down after that time. I thought one of the problems with these panels was particles bombarding it all the time and that eventually it would destroy it. How do you, uh, how do you hope to overcome that problem? Well, it's true that we are using um, solar cells, which you mean by solar panels. Right. Um, either we could um, continue to use them. Actually, there are methods to put um, materials into the solar panels to prevent them from being destroyed by um, bombardment by various types of radiation in outer space, mm-hmm. or potentially um, a completely different system could be used. Um, personally, I prefer the um, solar power satellite since it has um, less mechanical complexity. But um, other than that, designs have actually been made by companies such as Boeing for um, systems that are completely thermal. That is, they pick up the um, light in outer space um, coming from the sun and concentrate it, and that generates heat, of course, and then from that you heat up a um, fluid which um, is put through turbines to generate electricity in outer space. However, I personally don't uh, feel that is necessary. The design does exist, though. You mentioned one of your goals is to um, to have like energy-producing system using these these stations. Um, what about for telecommunications? Um, well, we don't expect to have any um, interference with telecommunications with um, design that we are proposing using lasers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the transmission is by infrared laser, okay. and we would be using a wavelength um, somewhat in excess of 10 microns. Oh. Um, that wavelength is chosen because it penetrates the atmosphere well, so it, the energy gets down to the earth without being absorbed. But on the other hand, it's invisible to the eye, so um, one can't see the beam and there's no interference with astronomy. And in addition, even um, this wavelength in particular, anything longer than 10 microns, um, cannot even penetrate into the eye, so um, there wouldn't be any danger of it um, going into the eye and causing damage to the retina. It's supposed to be a very safe system, then. Yes, it obviously has to be safe. If we're transmitting a beam of um, power 50 meters in diameter by laser beam to Earth, 
it has to have extreme safety in right. order to um, maintain its um, position. Um, we have to point it onto a receiver, which will be approximately the same size as the beam. Um, now, the receiver is actually located off the surface of the Earth a bit, which helps to um, provide additional layer of safety, of course. Mm. Um, by off a bit, here's what I mean. Um, instead of putting it right on the surface of the Earth where this beam um, would have to be received, we put the um, end of the beam up about 20,000 meters into the atmosphere, and we stop the beam up there by putting a balloon up there at um, 20,000 meters, which is suspended constantly, mm-hmm. and tethering it with a cable all the way to the surface of the Earth. Okay. So there's going to be several of these. The beam will um, be picked up on a receiver, which is on the balloon, and then the tether will also be a power-transmitting cable to bring the electricity down to the surface of the Earth. I see. We're interested in working with uh, self-producing systems. Um, could you tell us some more about those? Well, of course, um, this is the essential point of how one would construct these, obviously. Um, one can um, come up with these cost estimates, but then what are the details of how you produce the cost estimates and schedule all the systems in space to produce the cost estimates? Obviously, you've got to have manufacturing for producing the solar power satellites. There's two methods that have been proposed. The initial one was patented by a person by the name of Peter Glazer at the um, well-known um, consulting for- firm Arthur D. Little in 1968. He said, build all the solar power satellites on the surface of the Earth and then launch them. Large space shuttles have been designed, although not built to do that, but it's not self-reducing and the cost of launch is very high. As alternative, what you would do is put a relatively small factory in space. Um, by relatively small, let's be specific, 58 metric tons. You'd put that in space using two launches of the space shuttle and then move that um, using rockets over to the surface of the moon or to an asteroid where it would land, and then you'd be picking up material with this facility Hmm. for manufacturing, say, from an asteroid. Now, the facility um, is able to pick up the material, then um, refine it, Essentially, it's a mining operation at first. Mm -hmm. It does chemical processing to separate it into appropriate components, forms the uh, resulting um, separated materials into parts, and then constructs um, a final product with the parts, um, just as any overall manufacturing system on Earth would do. Now, the final um, part that you would construct, it could be a solar power satellite, but actually it's more efficient if the factory makes a copy of itself. rate of production of uh, facilities like this um, can be estimated. It turns out to be able to produce a, um, another copy of the same facility of, say, 58 metric tons after about um, three months. So using that figure of three months, you can um, estimate how long a number of generations would take to get up to a optimum rate of production for a large space manufacturing system consisting of many copies It takes about eight generations, it turns Mm -hmm. out. And then um, with the um, optimum system, essentially you have minimized the time um, to complete the final product of the solar power satellite once you start constructing the solar power satellite. So you build up your capacity at first and then construct the final product when your capacity is at the optimum. Um, So you could construct a, a very large object like a solar power satellite in outer space using these. And by very large, I'd say these uh, weigh actually about 10 to the fifth metric tons. Or you could also construct extremely large space stations. 
These are also called space colonies mm-hmm. or space habitats. So these would be unmanned? Um, well, as for the um, production facilities, the um, self-reproducing manufacturing facilities, um, I've done analysis on a number of different plants with them. Um, in the first plan, which is um, quite old, it dates back essentially to um, 1980, um, there's provision made for um, four men to go to the moon to help to set it up. Um, in other plans, though, that I have not um, used any men on the operations in space, and everything is done completely by remote control from mm-hmm. Earth or um, by automation of the f- facilities. And then um, the solar power satellites themselves and um, the facilities will have um, repairs that need to be made, but but then um, the repairs are done by robots on site and not by humans. If the um, uh, products include the construction of um, space habitats, then um, that's because people would be living in these space habitats. And depending on the size, um, you determine how many people would be appropriate for a large cylindrical rotating space habitat. Um, it can be a million up to um, several million. In fact, um, calculations were done on the maximum physical size that could even be constructed in 1974. That's published in um, Physics Today, an article by Gerard O'Neill, and it turns out to be 32 kilometers length and 3.2 kilometers radius of cylinder hmm. is the um, largest uh, physically constructible space habitat that would be a rotating object. Is this just due to the uh, the uh, the physical nature of these materials, or yes, at a certain point, um, the materials would not be able to maintain their strength because they're rotating in order to um, provide the usual artificial um, one gravity in outer space, and that puts a force on. Okay, so in terms of actually implementing this, uh, do we have the technology to do that, or do we still need a lot of development? Well, the technology was initially proposed in the 1970s. They had a few um, studies on this at an organization which does research called Space Studies Institute in 1978-79, which consists of workshops at um, Princeton University. They um, published it in 1980. Um, then they come, came up in the um, studies with the um, production rate of self-reproducing manufacturing facilities. Um, there's been some... Uh, conferences on that subject, especially notable is one um, called Advanced Automation for Space Missions by NASA. That was held in 1980. There's been a more recent one a couple of years ago held by National Science Foundation sponsored by um, Paul Warbus at National Science Foundation for um, construction of electricity generation Mm. facilities um, especially on the moon and that deals with the um, self-reproducing manufacturing facilities in a general way. Um, and in, tech, in terms of technical implementation, um, since 1997, um, a company in Japan named Fanuc, um has a robot, which is a model um, I-21i. Um, it's used for um, production of other robots, and it essentially does self-reproduction. What it does is not produce its own um, model. It produces another model, um, but it could produce its own um, model. Its production rate is actually much higher than I've um, been using for the plans that I've published on these space programs. Mm-hmm. So it produces 1,000 copies per year. There's been a proliferation of this robotic technology these days. Of, you know, and some visionaries have uh, 
have forecasting homes where you can have robots carry out, you know, uh, simple tasks for you. Uh, do you think this is the technology that they're going to use, or is it going to be something even more, uh, more fundamental? Well, um, actually, I've been following some of these robot technologies going a long ways back, say, to, um, I think, the Palo Alto VA Center in 1981 was giving a presentation at the University of California at Berkeley, which I attended at that time, on the subject of a robot that would help people, especially disabled people in their home, um, by serving their food and doing just all, all their chores for them. Mm-hmm. So I think the concept has been there for quite a long time. Um, it's just now, though, in the last five years, as I mentioned, that we've got with um, got to the point of actually having in regular production use um, self-reproducing um, robots. So everything essentially has to be done by robot because the cost of putting people in space um, by current technology, such as spatial, is very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, you can estimate it. Let's say we're putting uh, uh, roughly 10 people, just as a rough order of magnitude estimate, in space using the space shuttle per year. And um, we're paying about $3 billion per year for doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, you can see how much that's going to cost you. <laughs> it's on the uh, order of $30 million per year per person. Right. So obviously you want to avoid all the systems that are required to um, provide life support for people in outer space unless either they absolutely want to go there or if it's going to be economically beneficial or scientifically necessary. Okay. Well, uh, I guess we're running a little bit out of time, so are there any last words you'd like to add? Yes. I'd like to say that there's a um, biannual conference series dealing with manufacturing in space that Space Studies Institute at Princeton University Sponsors, if people are interested in that, they might want to uh, attend or see some of the um, conference proceedings. Mm-hmm. Um, these are published. Um, also, if you want to um, review the details of the calculations for the various plans for constructing of space colonies or um, solar power satellites, um, you should look at a comparison which I published in um, the journal named Space Power in 1993. It's volume 12, numbers 3 and 4. It's got more than 10 different plans, some with um, solar power satellites, some with space habitats constructed, and some with both. For example, to construct space habitats or space colonies, as it's called, turns out to take approximately um, 13 years and eight months from the first launch. And um, to construct solar power satellites takes approximately nine years and eight months from the first launch from Earth. Mm. Um, also, to um, contact our organization, California Space Program, I'll give the address, 2124 Kidridge Street, number 162, um, Berkeley, California, 94704, and telephone number is 510-849-9978. Great. Well, thanks a lot for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you very much. And that was Mr. Justin Hewitt we just talked to from the California Space Program. To find out more about manufacturing in space, you can call area code 510-849-9978. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, find out how the Gregorian calendar works, so stay tuned.
And now here's the answer to last week's question of the week. How was the Gregorian calendar established? Well, the Gregorian calendar is based on the divisions of a year, which is based on the rotation of the Earth around the Sun. Uh, it is only an approximate since we have a leap year every four years, but this leap year is also omitted every century, and that's how the Gregorian calendar was established. All right, I know it's the craziest Scotsman with this week's question of the week. Oh, it's cold. It's not a bloody great cold. That's because it's winter. I wish my body could keep up the temperature. And that's my question of the week. What is the average daily temperature of the body? Well, if you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us here at groks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but you just might feel a little bit warmer. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Groks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Groks, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Groks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music coming right up. <laughs>